This is Knowing God with Heart and Mind, our regular visit to the virtual church classroom at Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. I'm Pastor Dan. I'm joined by Bethany, my beautiful daughter, and we are in episode two of the It's a Wonderful Life Bible Study. And it is a Bible study. We're going to look at the scripture here in a minute. But of course, we're looking at that very familiar movie that uh, has become such an important part of American society and, and uh, that has so much meaning, especially to Christians, because it's just laced with Christian values. And uh, this episode is being recorded on Thursday, December 12th at about 8.26 in the morning. So we are... Uh, ready to go on this study. Uh, Bethany, this is session two, and and it's entitled, People Were Human to Him. We are using a Bible study created by uh, our uh, uh, friends at Brown Chair Books, and if you'll uh, check out the links in the uh, description box, you'll find out where you can get a copy of the Bible study to follow along. And uh, our thanks to Mr. Vermelier, who wrote this excellent study. So there's a sign on the wall in George Bailey's office that reads, All you take with you is that which you have given away. And this is kind of the epitome of George's life, right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is the essence of how he lived his life. And today we're going to look at how that all sort of became part of his life because of his father's influence. And uh, it just goes to show you, Bethany, that some dads can actually leave a positive impact on their children's lives and give them values that uh, they carry on in a, in a way that sort of honors the better things that fathers do. Isn't that wonderful? feels like you're fishing. <laughs> Lord knows I wouldn't want to hear one of my children say that I was a good dad. <laughs> yeah, because or we never say that. <clears throat> yeah, they're pretty good to me. I, I, I want you to know that, my friends. So let's just jump right in here. Our first clip is, uh, is an opportunity for us to compare and contrast uh, Peter Bailey and Henry Potter. So let's let's take a look at that clip. I'm not crying, Mr. Potter. Well, you're begging. That's a whole lot of work. Well, all I'm asking for is 30 days more. Uh -huh. Just a minute, son. Just 30 short days. I'll dig up that 5,000 somehow. Shut me up. Shut me up. Huh? Have you minute. put any real pressure on these people of yours to pay those mortgages? Time's up bad, Mr. Potter. A lot of these people are out of work. Well, foreclosed. I can't do that. These families have children. Huh? They're not my children. But they're somebody's children, Mr. Potter. Are you running a business or a charity war? Well, all my Not with my money. Mr. Potter, what makes you such a hard skulled character? You have no family, no children. You can't begin to spend all the money you've got. Oh, I suppose I should give it to miserable failures like you and that idiot brother of yours to spend for me. He's not a failure. You George, can't say George. that about my father. George, You're George. not. You're the biggest man in town. Run along. Bigger than him. Run along. Bigger than everybody. Don't let him say that about you, Pop. All right, son. All right. Thanks. I'll talk to you tonight. <laughs> wow. You know, I actually marvel at really... It just It's like every time I watch this movie, I can't get over how really mean Mr. Potter is. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is ugly. Mm -hmm. Oh, my Lord. You know, I mean, what kind of... I When I think about my relationships with people in in my world, even, even back before I was in ministry, when I worked in the trucking industry and there were some pretty crusty characters, it never occurred to me to speak to people that way. Mm -hmm. To, to talk down to them in such a condescending... Man, that's not even condescending. That's just insulting. I mean, just to say, you're... You know, look a man in the eye and say, you're a miserable failure and your brother's an idiot. Mm -hmm. You know? Lord knows I've been tempted in my weaker moments to say that about people, but then I would just think, well, there's no way I could say something like that. That's that's just unbelievable. Well, and he's so one-track, too, because, like... Like he wants, he wants his money back. So foreclose on them. Like there's no, there's no second option for him. 
it's just you know what I money. what I like about this movie is that it doesn't it isn't a remake of something else. It's not that you don't see uh, reruns of of other stories just being told in a different context. That that happens a lot, but what you see is characters that you can recognize from other stories. I mean, let's face it, Mr. Potter and Mr. Scrooge are t cut from the same cloth. I mean, they are two pretty much identical characters. Mm -hmm. However, Scrooge has a redemptive story, whereas Potter... Yeah. There really isn't. Yeah. So maybe Potter's more like uh, Marley. He's the Marley, yeah. Yeah, he's the Marley. He's, you know... So um, it just goes to show you that that the first thing you see modeled by Peter Bailey is that valuing and loving other people, especially, you know, in a more universal sense, uh, will cost you something. Mm -hmm. It it's um, but it, but I really feel like I need to say that, that it's not, you know, altruism. Um, and my definition of the word of altruism is, is sort of a, a uh, uh, self-satisfying well, version of there's a theory being in, good to others. There's a theory in sociology that there is no such thing as true altruism because true altruism is meant to be doing good for the sake of doing good, period. Right. And the theory goes that really there's no true altruism because when you do something good, you still get something out of it. Mm -hmm. Even if you aren't doing it in order to get that good feeling or whatever it is, subconsciously that's still happening. So there's no, there can't be true altruism. I don't know if I agree with that or not. Well, it's an interesting theory. So given, given what you just said, I am totally wrong in my definition of altruism and yet when when I started using the word, it was many years ago when I started looking at uh, demographics data that I had access to. Now, when I was in sales, there were, in those days, fat, huge, gigantic, paper-bound <laughs> books. But now I can go on uh, uh, software that is uh, subscribed to by my uh, Indiana Conference of the United Methodist Church, and I can use this software to look at the demographics data for my people in, in my region, you know, to get a sense of, of who I live with and and what their data suggests. And, and it's really interesting because they have a category in there for altruism. Um, they, they quantify altruism, and they do that by simply using tax data and so forth that suggests how much people give to charity. And in some communities, there's more giving to charity than others. So there's, a, there's data that mm -hmm. you can rec uh, reconcile. And what's really fascinating is as soon as I started looking at that word altruism in that way, it became sort of like a quantifiable version of, of good works in my mind. And, mm -hmm. and so that's how I arrived at my definition. And then I just started meeting so many people over the years who, who are proud of the giving that they do, but mm -hmm. not necessarily personally connected with the person to whom they're giving. Or, uh, and, and so it's a very interesting concept because, because I don't think that people who give without being personally connected are, are necessarily bad people. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, Mr. Potter doesn't give a dime to anybody that doesn't, you know, give him something of greater value oh, in yeah. return so you know there are people like that too the, the sad thing about mr parter is is they really exist um but uh it basically the message that we're looking at today is is that peter bailey and consequently george bailey become people who who are not doing good works just for the sake of doing good works they're doing it because they have uh, a limited ability but nevertheless they see people in the way that god sees them mm -hmm. as as someone worth dying for and i think that's where this is you know the significant difference is when you do good works for people because something inside you has come alive that is the very essence of Christ within you that causes you to just, you know, 
hungry hunger for them when they're hungry and to hurt for them when they're hurting and to and to to want them to stop suffering uh injustice and so forth and and so you you sacrifice in order to better their lives not because it makes you feel good but because it makes you feel like you're partnering with your king christ in his purpose and mission and so yeah what i get out of it is that it makes me feel like i'm drawing nearer to my lord you know so so it's possible to do good works and 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 get something out of it and not necessarily do that in a way that serves your ego yeah because if you exchange your ego for for lord jesus then your good works are meant to honor him and that gives you a great feeling because you just like the idea of being closer to him so let's let's look at uh another clip here that will help us to see a little more clearly who uh peter bailey was you know george i wish we could send harry to college with you your mother and i talked it over half the night mm. we have that all figured out if you harry will take my job in the building alone work there for four years then he'll go mm. pretty young for that job well no younger than i was well you were born older george Okay. I say you were born older. I suppose you've decided what you want to do when you get out of college. Oh, well, you know what I've always talked about. Build things, design new buildings, plan modern cities. Mm. All that stuff I've been talking about. Still after that first million before you're 30, huh? No, I'll sell half that in cash. <laughs> of course, it's just a hope, but uh, you wouldn't consider coming back to the building alone, would you? Well, I... Well, Annie, why, why don't you draw up a chair? Then you'd be more comfortable and you could hear everything that's going on. <laughs> I would if I thought I'd hear anything worth listening to. You would. I know it's soon to talk about it. No, not Pop. I, I couldn't. I, uh, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. The... No, I'm, I'm sorry, Pop. I didn't mean that. I, but I, it, it's this business of nickels and dimes and spending all your life trying to figure out how to save three cents and a length of pipe, I go crazy. I, I want to do something big and something important. You know, George, I feel that in a small way, we are doing something important. It's satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. I know, Bob. I, I know that. I, I, I wish I felt that... Uh, I've been hoarding pennies like a miser here in order to... Most of my friends have already finished college. I, I just feel like if I didn't get away, I'd bust. Yes, yes. You're right, son. You see what I mean, don't you, Pop? This town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. Now, you've got talent, son. I've seen it. You get yourself an education and get out of here. Hmm. <laughs> Wow. Well, I heard you chuckling a minute ago. Let's just give homage to Lillian Randolph, one of the great actresses of the <laughs> mid-20th century. And, well, I don't want to go on my rant, but Lillian Randolph is a perfect example of how Hollywood treated uh, black actors and actresses in those days. Um, uh she was a trusted voice on radio. She advertised products um, because even white upper class and middle class Americans felt like if, uh, you know, the maid, um, uh, Birdie, she played Birdie on, on uh, a very popular radio show called The Great Gildersleeve. And if Birdie told them that this was the best cooking oil in town, you know, people would buy it because she recommended it. So she had that credibility with people that they actually used her as a spokesperson. And yet she was confined to this role of that, you know, black woman who lived in the black part of town who came to where the white people lived to serve them, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that was the kind of role she always played. Obviously, in this movie, Lillian Randolph is playing uh, Annie, who is uh, like part of the family. You know, she can even 
give him a little motherly talking to about how he ought to treat his father, mm-hmm. and yet she's going to go home to her little black neighborhood mm-hmm. and live the black family life and go to her black church. And, and I don't mean any disrespect. I'm saying that's the way they portrayed these people in the earliest part of the Well, you know, my my beloved black friends who might listen to this will say, oh, Dan, listen, it's it's not just back then. It's, you know... Hopefully we're getting better at this, but but what's really sad is that she was this wonderful, incredible woman, and I don't know the whole story, but my understanding is that like a lot of black actors and actresses, they just got by, and then when they couldn't work anymore, they disappeared into obscurity and probably didn't die in comfort, and you know, it's just sort of ironic, but I digress. Um, you know, if if we are people... Perhaps I'm going to be able to bring this full circle by just saying perhaps the pain that I feel thinking about Lillian is that heart of Christ in me that says that was unjust, you know, and that that I feel a certain love for this person I never met who's long gone now, and and my heart aches because she was treated unjustly and so many people like her were. And you could either approach that in a purely altruistic way, or you could just say, I see someone that Christ thought was worthy of dying for who isn't getting a fair shake, and it makes me sad. So anyway, the point that we're really driving at here is how would you describe George's father, Peter Bailey? Uh, What kind of influence do you think he had on his father, on his son, rather? Well, I think you see later exactly what kind of influence he had on his son. Not, I, like, I don't know that George may see it right now, like, in that moment that we just witnessed. But later on in the movie, you can see that there's a lot of Peter Bailey and George. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but then again, you kind of see it even in that first clip we watched. We were talking, it, it didn't really fit with what we were talking about, but I was thinking, like, especially in that time but even now a kid talking to an elder like that is super inappropriate oh yeah across circles but i think george sees that his dad is is sticking up for people and he's not gonna let his dad or his uncle be disparaged in front of him and he lets potter have it right then and there which he does multiple times throughout the movie but Mm -hmm. Do you remember hearing about an incident several years ago where uh, mom and I had observed that our youngest daughter, Ruthie's special ed bus driver, had been sort of mistreating her? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ruthie's in a wheelchair, and, and I went out to talk to her about it one day as she was unloading Ruthie, and I was very courteous, and I went up to her and I said, hey, I want to talk to you. I'm a little concerned that that uh, maybe Ruthie's not being treated fairly in certain ways. And, and oh boy, she went on the offensive and she just started saying all these insultive, condes- insulting, condescending things to me. And, and it just escalated. And finally I looked at her and I said, hey, you know, you're way out of line here. You know, I'm, I'm talking to you about my daughter's welfare and you are just going on the warpath here, insulting me and insulting her. And there's nothing productive about this. You are way out of line. And I was getting mad. And then here comes Ruthie on her. She's, you know, you have to picture that we're on ground level and she's about six feet above us on her elevator on her way down. And here's Ruthie descending like she's on a throne, descending down to our eye level. And right about the time she gets to eye level with that short little round bus driver that's mouthing off to her daddy, she says, you stop talking to my dad that way. You treat him with some respect as she was on the warpath. That girl was ready to tear into that little round lady who was giving me a hard way to go. And, mm-hmm. and I said, well, look, I think we're done talking. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to have to talk to someone in charge, I guess, to see if we can get this settled. And, and she, this driver points over to the church that I'm serving as pastor and says, yeah, you go pray about that. And then she waddles up onto the bus and drives away and oh ruthie was hot Mm -hmm. and i just thought you know the reason i brought it up is because i'm telling you what you know your kids might 
mouth off to you and treat you like crap. But boy, let anyone else do that. And you find out your kids are going to stand by you because by, by golly, that's my dad. Mm-hmm. And that's what you saw mm-hmm. little George doing there. It's like, hey, I don't care who you are. You don't talk to my dad that way, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a character thing, you know. And <laughs> we could say whatever we want about Ruthie, but the one thing you can be sure of is that she's as good as gold. <laughs> and, and she's going to stand up for her daddy even in a wheelchair, you know. And uh, that was a pretty cool story. Now, it was not fun that day. Well, but no. And it really, you know, I talked to a supervisor. It didn't really resolve anything except that it got easier on Ruthie. But, you know, there were no apologies. And wow. there's a whole lesson in that about justice. You know, so many times we think we're owed justice, but we don't really ever see it. And maybe that's just as well, you know. There's a part of me that says that lady was worth dying for and that Christ wants her in heaven just as badly as he wants me there. And there's a lot of brokenness behind her attitude and a lot of bitterness that came out towards me. I probably represented something to her that she was very angry with. And so she didn't know me, but she thought she knew me because of who she thought I was. Mm -hmm. So she was mad at who she thought I was, not me. She didn't know me. And later I can reflect on it that way and I can have peace with it and even forgive her and ask for God's grace toward her. But it doesn't happen in the moment necessarily. Mm -hmm. God knows I wish it could, but that's when I'd be a lot more like Jesus than I am now. So, you know, would you go in the family business knowing everything that old Peter's been through? You know, (laughs) you think George is somewhat justified in his attitude? Well, I think he is and he isn't because he's got very, like, he definitely has, like, not delusions, but he has a lot of ideas about, grandiose ideas about what his life is going to be, which I think a lot of people who are young do. But I don't think he's wrong in thinking that it'd be awfully hard to eke out a living and doing what his dad did. Yeah, yeah. I think he cares as much as his dad, but... He also has the fear every young person has of being able to make ends meet. And mm-hmm. and he's not sure that he can do that based on what his dad does every day. All right. Well, let's do some Bible study. Look at Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. What's that say? He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is a, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds in the air come and perch in its branches. Yeah. And then uh, find James 3, verse 5. So, why is it so tempting, you think, for George and all of us to think that the little things we do don't really make a difference? You know, because because they look like little mustard seeds, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's Christmas story. It's Christmas time. Um, You know how when you decorate uh, Christmas cookies, sometimes they put those little silver balls on them. A mustard seed is about half the size Mm -hmm. of one of those. I mean, the mustard seed is the size of a pinhead. And Jesus uses that as an example, you know. And so what does James 5 tell us about what a small spark can do? Well, it says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but makes great boasts, which is pretty great. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think George really understood the significance of what his father had done at that point in his life or did it have to happen later i think it probably had to happen later i think george had to be in the thick of it to really get it yeah like some of the scenes that we watched last session yeah and i think time has a way of of balancing things you know which is there's a line actually from the movie you know where the old man's watching george and mary you know, flirting with each other. And he says, well, why don't you go ahead and kiss her? Youth is wasted on the young, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's true. It's true. When we're young, we have the physical energy and vitality to do all sorts of amazing things, but we don't have enough wisdom. But then when we get older and our vitality starts to fade, a lot of things start to add up for you. And the wisdom is priceless. 
And the sad thing is, is I give anything to have my body of my youth, but I wouldn't trade my mind in for nothing because I like what I know now. And I like Mm -hmm. what I've earned in the way of self-confidence and poise and, and, and wisdom, you know, well, let's look at another clip now. What is that, Gaddis? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute. Just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Powell. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they, they, you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, you're the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. Wow. Once again, Henry Potter, possibly one of the most vile villains ever. He yawns in the middle of George's speech. He... Jimmy Stewart is so good at delivering those yeah. speeches. Yeah. And it's the best. And did you notice? He he more or less quotes his father. He quoted his dad a couple of times. You know, he, he quoted his father there. So, you know, when George's father suddenly dies and George comes out of that meeting uh just incensed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh don't you love what he says about why his father started this thing? Mm-hmm. So the people didn't have to deal with Potter. Yeah. The, so the people could have something to call their own. and Because they were like human beings. Mm-hmm. Because, and that's, like, that's the title of this lesson is, is they were people to mm-hmm. him. They, they were human to Peter Bailey. So uh, what do you think are some of the, you know, and, and I love to do this because I've even done it literally by writing a story, a sort of uh, post, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a, a sort of post-crisis version, you know, um, in my story that I'll share before this is all over, you know, George is, is still there and he's in his old age, you know, and, and, but, but let's, let's do the prequel uh, for just a minute. What is in the prequel? To it's a wonderful life. What are some of the sacrifices that you think Peter Bailey probably made running that uh, building alone, and some of the things he did for the sake of the people? Well, I mean, just based off of like what George and Mary do, I bet you anything. There were times his family went without, so that the families that he was trying to take care of with the building and loan had what they needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it's true because you know, like George and Harry. Like he says, they like they weren't going to get to go to college unless they scraped the money together because they didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we have um, to look at George and Mary to get a picture mm-hmm. of what Peter Bailey and Ma Bailey. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking. I don't think she gets a name in the movie. She doesn't no, get I a name. I think she's either Mrs. Bailey or Ma Bailey. And and you know you have to kind of imagine that they probably did the same mm-hmm. sorts of things, you know, and yeah, and. Uh, you know, when Peter Bailey is asking Potter to give him another month to raise $5,000, mm-hmm. 
And this is in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. During the well maybe the late 20s you know but it's it's like it's the it's a terrible time and and he's uh well no it's probably the early 20s and i'm sorry it's because because george deals with the stock market Mm -hmm. crash so anyway somewhere around the very beginning of the 20th century peter bailey is down five thousand dollars which is huge Mm -hmm. and he's asking potter who apparently can spare it like it's spare change for him and and he's asking him just to hang on and and uh uh you know potter's response is well put pressure on those people mm-hmm. foreclose you know and and you know peter bailey isn't willing to do that so he's willing to be humiliated yeah for the sake of the ones he's trying to save now doesn't that sound Sort of like something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's look at Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. Um, It would help if I'd told you ahead of time, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Well, oh, 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 oh. Yeah, I did. Okay. I I flipped because I was at the right verse. I thought, and then you, you were. switched it on. You me. were. It's all my fault, Beth. Okay. I flipped one page, then it turned out to be two. Yeah. So yeah, Matthew. We're actually looking at Matthew nineteen sixteen to twenty two. Okay. Yeah. What What did the rich ruler's response to Jesus indicate? Well, do you want me to read it? Ah, right, sure. Okay. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked the teacher, "What good things must I do to get eternal life?" Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Mm. Yeah. So in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, you got to let go of the stuff. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the, the, the acquisition of money and wealth. And and there's the real, you know, if you want to know what's at the heart of Potter's cold black soul is, he's got all the money. And once you got all the money, what else do you do? You know, what's left once you've got all the money? The only thing that's left then is to use it to control things. Mm-hmm. And you can control things with your money. Because you're just obsessed with the control and the power that you have over others. Mm-hmm. Or you can do, like, because this also is a little indicative of a time in American history when the Industrial Revolution created people of extraordinary wealth that, that, that had more money than they could use in three lifetimes because it was just phenomenal. The, their capacity to earn uh was so far ahead of of anything natural at the time and it didn't balance you know and 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 so they built fabulous mansions they built fabulous summer homes they bought boats and cars and planes and they did all of that and then when they still had too much money they had two choices they could either use it for power and influence like uh say the hearsts out west or um you know the kennedys in in the east or they could like andrew carnegie start looking at how their wealth could be used for power or it could be used for great good and so they start taking that money and trying to find ways to do great good Mm -hmm. uh doesn't necessarily make one bad or the other good i'm not here to debate that but i'm just saying that that people who accumulate a a lot of wealth have a decision to make Mm -hmm. do you use that wealth to do good or you do you use it to control everything that you feel like you want to control you know um because that's that's what people do with money they they buy security Mm -hmm. that's always the first thing we want with money and i'd like to have enough money to have security i want enough money to pay off my mortgage Mm -hmm. so i don't have to 
worry about whether I'm going to have my house taken away from me. Yeah. I want to have enough money saved up so that if I have a medical problem, I don't have to worry about where the money's going to come from. And so that's the kind of security we all want. And then we start looking at securing, you know, our children's lives and leaving them better off than we were, you know, in, in any way we can. And, and those are all good things. They're even biblically pre, uh, prescribed, but you know, once you've done all of that, then what can you do with your money? You know, and there's where people reach a decision. They have to decide whether they're going to use their money to do good or to do something that will give them more control. And gosh, a lot of people do that. Mm-hmm. And they become like Potter. Well, there's an editorial comment on my part. <laughs> um, so, So basically, according to... Matthew 10, 38 and 39, what do you got to give up? Well, this is the verse where he tells that basically you have to, like, you have to lose your life in order to find it. And if you don't, then you're not really following Christ. You're not worthy. And you know, that's really the essence of the Ebenezer Scrooge story. He's talked about his redemption Mm -hmm. is he's confronted with his life and he loses his life, so to speak. He, he reaches a point where he realizes he's going to die tonight. And it's at that moment when he's confronted with his death that he makes the decision to be born again. Well, I agree with you, but I also wouldn't want to cheapen it to, to, he only changes once he's confronted with dying because there's a reason that he's, well, yeah, past, yeah, present, he, and future. Well, he, just because I think it's wrong to say, "Oh, well, when somebody's facing mortality, that's when they change," because I think that makes it less true. I'm glad you clarified that. I really am. But but I just, I, I would just say that that I was sort of implying that. Yeah. I was simply saying that when it got down to it, there were two outcomes that we're going to have to be a result of what he had become aware of. He chooses to lose the life that is thoroughly without meaning. He's made it. He's made a decision to die to his old life yeah. rather than to die in his old life. Yes. That's, that's it really. Yeah. And, and this is unfortunately not what happens to Potter as far as we know. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to jump ahead here um, to the next video clip because we need to meet another character, mm-hmm. uh, Gloria Graham, one of the most beautiful women in Hollywood. And uh, she was not, you know, rated up there with the bombshells or anything, but I thought she was gorgeous. And uh, another one with a tragic life. But anyway, let's take a look at Violet. And for the carriage trade, I put on my hat. Good afternoon, Mr. Bailey. Hello, Violet. Hey, you look good. That's some dress you got on there. What? This old thing? Well, I only wear it when I don't care how I look. Would you like to yes. take... Excuse me. <laughs> I think I got a date. But uh, stick around, fellas, just in case, huh? We'll wait for you, baby. Hello, George Forty. Um, what give? Nothing. Where are you going? Oh, I'm probably end up down at the library. Georgie, don't you ever get tired of just reading about things? Yes. What are you doing tonight? Nothing. Are you game, Vi? Let's make a night of it. Oh, I'd love it, Georgie. What'll we do? Let's go out in the fields and take off our shoes and walk through the grass. Huh? Then we can go up to the falls. It's beautiful up there in the moonlight. And there's a green pool up there, and we we can uh, swim in it. Then we can climb Mount Bedford and smell the pines and watch the sunrise against the peaks and we'll stay up there the whole night and everybody will be talking. There'll be a terrific scam. Georgie, what about have you it? gone crazy? Why, walking the grass in my bare feet? <laughs> Why, it's 10 miles up to Mount Bedford. Oh, oh, oh okay, just forget about the whole thing. <laughs> 
character. If I had any character, oh, I... it takes a lot of character to leave your hometown and start all over again. Oh, no, Judge. Here. Don't. No, here. Now, you're broke, aren't you? I know, but... What do you, what do you want to do? Hawk your furs and that hat? <laughs> want to walk to New York? You know, they charge for meals and rent up there just the same as doing Bedford Falls. Yeah, sure. No, no, it's a loan. That's my business, building and loan. Besides, you'll get a job. Good luck to you. I'm glad I know you, George Bailey. Say hello to New York for me. Yeah, yeah, sure, I will. Well, let's hear from him. Hmm. Merry Christmas, Will. Merry Christmas, George. Oh, I was not going to go, George. I changed my mind. Wow. The whole story of Violet in one clip. <laughs> Where do we begin? Because I want to do a movie critique, a character <laughs> critique. I just love the movie. You know, when she's young and they're, and all these men are watching her and, and, and they cut it off right before uh -huh. the line that I think is so funny. Because because if you watch this movie character carefully, you realize there's nothing prudish about it. There are several very suggestive scenes in the movie, but they're so tastefully done mm -hmm. that you totally approve of it. And as a Christian podcast from a Christian Bible study, I am perfectly okay with the way they present the fact that God made men and women different and God meant for us to find each other intriguing. And that was by design. And I love the line where Bert the cop says, I think I'll go home and see what my wife's doing. That is so suggestive mm -hmm. and so hilarious, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, uh, then there's that scene. We'll probably get to it eventually. The scene where where you know George Bailey goes back to the Granville house for his honeymoon, and and he's looking around at all the accoutrements, mm -hmm. and then he sees the nightgown on the bed, and it's just brilliant. You know, mm -hmm. it's just so subtle but so suggestive, and it's so normal and healthy. Mm -hmm. They're married, and he just realized this is his honeymoon. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful, you know, and and it's also human i i think i think capra you know you were talking last week about capricorn and the way people make fun of that and i made me sad it, and i do understand i gotta get by we got to finish the study part here but i just have to say that what i believe frank capra did that very few have ever managed to accomplish is he's really told the the sort of american story of the american human being mm -hmm. you know that 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 he was able to capture what it meant to be the very best of an american human yeah in the middle of the 20th century yeah. you know i mm -hmm. mean they've been coined as the greatest generation at this point and and i think justifiably so it doesn't mean they were all great people but it simply means that that that, that may have been one of the at the highest points in american history as far as American character. And I know it sounds like I'm being patriotic, but what, what I'm really talking about is, is that is a time when Americans behaved with Judeo-Christian values. Mm -hmm. And that's what made America great. And now, you know, we want to push all of that Judeo-Christian value out, embrace everything else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just unfortunate because he he brings out the very best in people. And I just think that's incredible. So how would you describe Violet Bick? What do you think the people in Bedford Falls thought about her? Well, <clears throat> I think some people really liked her. <laughs> but I think probably I mean there's it's kind of like when you're in high school there's like always one girl that everybody gossips about yeah whether they've earned it or not because I don't know that Violet necessarily earned all the gossip about her yeah I, I think don't she either she was a flirt I think she's a I major think that's flirt about it yeah you know I don't I think be, she teased people yeah and it was fun for her but I don't think that she was loose yeah i don't think she was ever over the top right right um and and i think that's 
another thing to love about George is he probably knew there was talk about her in town, but as far as he was concerned, she was a friend. Mm-hmm. An attractive friend. But he but, saw her as a human being. Yeah, she And was he just, valued her without, like... He doesn't judge her choices either. Like, when she decides she's going to get out of Bedford Falls and go to New York, he doesn't judge that choice. He helps make yeah. it happen for her. Um, and he just... He, and he probably knows this isn't going to work out any better because you're the problem. Mm-hmm. You know? But he doesn't care because it's just a matter of taking care of a friend and he's not judging. Yeah. And so. and often in, in Christian ministry, we find ourselves helping people knowing full well that this isn't going to solve their problem. Mm-hmm. And they're constantly making decisions about whether to give unconditional help or, and I, and I know this sounds like a contradiction, but I don't mean it this way, or unconditional love. Because sometimes unconditional love requires you to do the hard thing instead of the easy mm-hmm. thing. Unconditional help means you just give the help away. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you help somebody a few times and then you realize that the, this time you're going to have to talk to them in, in a spirit of truth and love. And you have to say, this isn't solving your problem. Mm-hmm. And what I want for you is wholeness. Mm-hmm. Thinking back to my favorite King James verse, "Wilt thou be made whole. Mm-hmm. You know, when Jesus is talking to the man by the pool at Bethesda, you know, um, the idea that wholeness is what, what we all need so yeah so well and then this is just me me loving jimmy stewart again i do it a lot but i love when she shows up at the end and throws the money he gave her back down on the table and tells him that she's not going to new york he's so he i love his facial expressions because he totally telegraphs relief like Mm -hmm. he's relieved that she's not going but there's also just joy because of mm-hmm. everything that's happening, because we haven't really gotten to that. But when she comes back, he, you know, because she's his friend. Well, and, and I think you said that really well. And what I realized as you were saying that was when she heard that George had a problem. She was right there. She was there mm-hmm. for him. And yep. her plans didn't matter, Mm-mm. you know. Which speaks to her character, too. Character that the town had judged. Yes. But as soon as her friend George, who takes care of everyone, needs help, she's back and she's like, forget it, I'm not leaving. Yeah. How can I help? Yeah. So. I just got cold chills a little bit thinking about that. And maybe because of his influence. Yeah. Without him even realizing his influence, which is the whole point of the movie. But. Mm. I think if you put an epitaph on my stone someday, I'd be satisfied with, he was a lot like George Bailey. (laughs) I'd like that. I think I'd like that a lot. Not as good looking as Jimmy, not as tall and slim, but you know, I'd like to have that character. You haven't quite mastered that stutter speech. Well, I probably won't. (laughs) Everybody tries to do Jimmy Stewart. I don't know that anybody really can. I think that. You know, probably the only one that ever got him exactly right was Rich Little. Mm. But I digress. So so in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, we hear about the story of Zacchaeus, mm-hmm. which I'm going to summarize mm-hmm. here. Uh, we went to Jericho not long ago. There's mm-hmm. a big old tree there that's called the Zacchaeus tree. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not. It's just really old. It is a sycamore tree. And it's big. It's yes. big. And, you know, it's a beautiful concept. Uh, Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and he's got a reputation. And because he's Jewish. He's Jewish. He's a tax collector, which means he's in league with the Romans. Yeah. He's in league with the corrupt Jewish governments. Um, and so how, how would the average Jew have seen him? Well, he. I think in a lot of ways they would have seen him as even more vile than the Roman tax collectors or the Romans because he was their people choosing to be like the other guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, you know, the fact is, is there are a few things that will bring out rage and anger in another person than betrayal. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that old saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. If you've ever betrayed a woman or at least given her the impression that you have betrayed her, you find out that that woman has some 
angry response. And, and uh, well, the truth is, is all human beings respond very violently to betrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, when there's a deep trust that gets broken mm-hmm. and there's a sense that if he's one of them by culture, by religion, by birth, and then somehow he turns to the side of their enemy and then oppresses them alongside the enemy. My gosh, that's, that's the worst kind of betrayal. Mm-hmm. And, but how did Jesus see him? Well, just like Jesus sees everybody. No difference. Humans. Yeah. And, and go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, I think it's the next question, but it's kind of like the Violet thing where, they made assumptions about Zacchaeus's character because, and maybe rightly so, mm-hmm. but when Jesus comes to town, Zacchaeus is going to do anything he can to get an audience with him just mm-hmm. to see him even, um, because he recognizes that this is somebody that he needs to know. I was thinking about this a little earlier and I don't think we want to try to psychoanalyze Henry Potter, but narcissistic personality disorder done. Fine. Absolutely no remorse, no regret, no sensitivity towards another person. Mm-hmm. There's a sense in Zacchaeus that he has, you know, like you were saying about Scrooge. Scrooge was really bad, but there was something redeemable about him. And it's, it's so Zacchaeus may be a lot more like, like Scrooge in, in our sort of character well, I comparisons. I think Zacchaeus must have recognized that he needed Jesus or he wouldn't have gone to all the trouble he went to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. I know all of you are out there in podcast land thinking, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Now let, we've got that out of our system. Let's move on. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. <laughs> and and who knew? Tree. Who knew sycamore trees had nuts? They don't. It's a lie. <laughs> well, they do, but... If they, they try to sell you sycamore nuts, go ahead and buy them because they're yummy, but they're not sycamore Yeah, nuts. we found out in this last trip they're to They're just crunchy, crunchy-covered peanuts. The, they have this thing they call sycamore nuts, but they're actually peanuts with a crunchy coating on them that are very delicious, but they don't come from a sycamore tree. they're not tree. from a sycamore tree. I mean, peanuts I suppose... Peanuts aren't even nuts. Let's get that out there. Now, they could be... That's true. They're beans. Legumes. Legumes. Thank you for correcting me You're on welcome. that. And, and, you know, the only thing I can think of is maybe a squirrel put them in the sycamore tree. Somebody got them out, baked them up. <laughs> okay, forget it. I just don't think that's how it went. I I'm, think it's I'm pretty just, sure it's a tourist I think gimmick. it's just a gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> you want the nuts from the tree from Zacchaeus the sat tree, in? Yeah. He sat in the tree They're watching Jesus delicious. eating these nuts. <laughs> what does Zacchaeus... And the rich young ruler have in common, and how are they different? Well, they're both sitting real pretty, but when Zacchaeus is confronted with the option to have his wealth and his status, really, because even if his status is not great within his own people, he is a person of status within the Roman rule, which honestly was probably more important at the time because they were the ruling class, they were in charge. Yeah. And when he's confronted with whether he's going to have status or Jesus, well, he he chooses Jesus, whereas the rich ruler, Mm -hmm. the young man, he is like, well, I'd like to follow you, but I don't know. And he walks away. He doesn't come back. Yeah, I mean, basically, Jesus spelled out for him exactly what Zacchaeus did. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he told the rich ruler, hey, you have to give it all up. And follow me. Zacchaeus gave it all up and followed him. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing in the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus that suggests that Jesus had to tell him to do it. Yeah, I mean, Jesus... Like, he just did it. Like, he invites Jesus back to his house, which is bold. And yeah. I think a lot of the people following Jesus were like, what are you doing, man? But it was what Jesus did, so... Yeah. But, but yeah, Zacchaeus, like, Jesus comes to... Zacchaeus's house and Zacchaeus is like man I feel terrible about everything I've done mm-hmm. I'm giving all of my like I think he says like half his possessions to yeah. the poor but then he says if, he, if he's cheated anybody which I think he had cheated a lot of people probably he says everybody. he's gonna pay him back like fourfold yeah so by the end of that I can't imagine that he was sitting real pretty anymore but 
then Jesus tells him, well, because you, because you have figured all that out and on your own, even Mm -hmm. salvation's here. Like you, you did it, man. You figured out what's the most important thing. So, yeah. So how can we be open and loving and yet not put ourselves at risk because we're naive and foolish? I think that's a really hard thing to figure out. And I think a little bit of figuring it out is being naive and foolish to begin with. Like, in order to avoid becoming cynical and untrusting, I think sometimes you do have to just put yourself out on a limb. <laughs> Literally, there's, in Zacchaeus's case. There's a passage from Colossians that I just looked at yesterday where the the Apostle Paul says, you have to be gracious and kind in your speech, but make sure it includes a certain saltiness. And I did a word study, and what I found out was the words he uses to describe gracious, uh, that are they're translated to gracious and kind in English, what he really said in the Greek was, you have to let your speech be sweet, but also a little salty. And that's brilliant. Because he's basically saying that every time you deal with people, it has to be a little bit like a payday bar. you got to have a little sweet and a little salt. And, you know, that doesn't give you the answer to the how, but it just reminds you that in Scripture, we're being encouraged to do good works in the name of Jesus, but to do them with a certain saltiness that says, you know, be on your guard. There are people out there who are just simply, you know, taking advantage of you. Um, be assertive enough to say, you know, I can't help you because you've got a bigger problem than you're telling me about. And, and I've lived this one. Well, you know, I think part of the example you see with Violet Bix is, is that, that she's entirely redeemable and, and George knows this. And presumably there have been people in George's office who were trying to take advantage of him because they'd heard about his great kindness and his generosity and he had to say, you know, bub, can't help you. There's more going on here than what you're telling me. Well, but I also think, like I said, there is a little bit of maybe naivete. And I think that that's okay because if you help somebody that you're pretty sure is going to, is not maybe needing it the way they say they are or whatever at the end of the day you still helped somebody and if they come back again and nothing has changed then that's when you can be a little bit more well and and just say like hey you know i helped you before and i'd like to help you again but i'm not sure that this is the help you really are needing right now what else can I do to help? So this and this is an opportunity for me to use one of my favorite phrases. And as far as I know, I've never heard anyone else say this, which doesn't mean it's unique to me. But several years ago, when confronted with this question of whether we do or not, I said, when in doubt, err on the side of grace. Yeah. So, you know, it really has always been sort of my motto. If I'm not sure what to do, and believe me, there are times when I'm really sure. There are times when I recognize a certain shtick that I've heard a thousand times, and it's always blown my mind how some of these people who come in to take advantage of the church are using lines I've heard a hundred times, and they think that they're really clever and that I've never heard that one before. Mm-hmm. And I, and I don't mean that in a condescending, insulting way. I just mean that it's remarkable to me because it really is a statement of what I was just saying about people having a bigger problem than what they're telling me about. They tell me they need a pair of boots, but in the way that they tell me, they're telling me that they have a much bigger problem. You know, they're telling me they got borderline personality disorder or something like that. You know, they're communicating all kinds of things to me that I know are indications that that this isn't what they're really needing and I can't really help. But then there are people who I don't really know for sure what's going on and I just err on the side of grace and I can tell you there's been many a times where if I had cash in my pocket, I just gave it to them. Yep. Well, and that's that's something that I I think goes along with what we're talking about and I think George Bailey would do 
based on the character. Well, like, okay, I was just thinking, one of the people we know that George helps and is is a big part of George's kind of character arc is Mr. Martini, who yeah. happens to own the town bar. And I think a lot of people would say, would maybe judge George Bailey for helping that guy get his affairs in a good place because he owns the town bar. But and, Oh, go on. I'm sorry. It's no, just it's that okay. you just provoked an idea. that. It... But I was just thinking, like, I sometimes... And like you said, the airing on the side of grace thing, sometimes I get really frustrated with people that are wonderful people, but they have, they, they have this idea that when you're helping people, it has to be on their terms only. And they'll say like, oh, well, yeah, that guy has a sign that says he needs money to, to get home to his kids and he's on the highway, but he's probably just going to go buy beer. And I think, who cares? That's not like that. That's not our business anyway. And this is a person who needs help. Because whether he's going to go buy beer or not, he's still standing on the middle of the highway median Yeah, in yeah. a ratty coat and holding a piece of cardboard. Like, obviously, he's not doing great, guys. Why does it matter what? Something is fundamentally wrong in this person's life because this is what they've chosen. And I just, it bugs me when there's strings attached to, to helping people. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, thank and goodness I, Jesus didn't give us the same yeah. uh, expectation. Um, and I think George Bailey is is definitely an example of a person who it's not. And I think I'm, I'm not di- disagreeing with you in saying that, you know, there's probably people who have come to him where he's been like, I'm not sure that me taking cash out of my pocket and handing it to you is going to be the most helpful thing to you. But I don't think that he that there are strings attached to his... I, I would just put it to you this way, and my prayer for my daughter is that you never have to find this out the hard way like I have. But there's evil in the world. Yeah. And sometimes it stands right in your doorway looking you right in the eye. Definitely. And your dog knows. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I'm just saying, sometimes you are standing face to face with evil, mm-hmm. and you'll know. Mm-hmm. I just hope you don't have to. Boy, there are a couple of places I wanted to go, and I really need to wrap this up. First of all, I was thinking that in the movie, Martini's bar is contrasted beautifully. Under the under the martini that George helps to cultivate, his yeah. bar is a bright, cheerful pub. Nice place to be, yeah. You know, and, and in British culture, you know, the pub was more than just a bar. It was the, it was the gathering place. And people saying, you know, uh, it had been in the same ownership for hundreds of years and the same families went there to to eat and visit every day for hundreds of years. So it's like a community center in a way. Mm-hmm. And and so Martini's created a place that that in many ways enhances the community. And then in the contrasting view, the bar is a place it's where bad. the bad people get drunk and then go out worse, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so it's a, it's a beautiful contrast. And then the other thing that you, you uh, reminded me of is, is in my message on Sunday, this past Sunday, I told people that once we realize that we're, we're battling our creator and our creator's going to win, we have two choices. We, we can either fight to the death knowing that we're going to lose or we can negotiate for peace, but we have nothing to bring to the table. And then God does the most unbelievable, extraordinary thing. Now, wait until you see where I'm going with this. I said last week, God goes to the negotiating table and gives you a gift, pushes it across the table to you and says, now give that back to me and we're at peace. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's pretty incredible. He gives you the only thing that you can bring to the negotiating table and then tells you that all you got to do is give it to him Mm -hmm. and you're at peace with God. George gives Violet the last bit of money he's got in his pocket, sends her on his way, and then at the end of the movie, she gives it back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the astonishment on his face that you were talking about it a minute ago minute ago is a sign that she has sort of redeemed herself mm-hmm. wouldn't you love to maybe dad will write a sequel about violet you know uh, 
and and how her daughter became the first female mayor of Bedford Falls or something like that. You know what I mean? I I could just I'm just saying, you know, because that's what one guy's faith in another human being could Mm do. So, wow. He also gives her that money while he is like, because that's near the end of the movie. And he he gives her the last bit of money in his pocket while he's aware that there's eight grand missing. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a huge discrepancy. Um, So that about does it for this episode and i am having fun i hope everybody else is uh if you haven't watched the movie go watch the movie you know every time we do this i want to go watch it yeah and and it's easy to watch the movie so we won't talk about that you can visit the amazon and get this bible study that we're using it's the wonderful life bible study you should be able to find that easily in amazon and uh kudos to mr vermelier for his uh, excellent work that we're benefiting from. I'll put the links in the in the uh, description box. Now, if you'd like to know more about Shiloh United Methodist Church and me and Bethany and everything that's going on in Jasper, you can start by visiting shilohum.org. That's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M.org. And uh, that's the starting point because there you'll find all the connections to our app, uh, to other podcasts we do, to uh, information about our school, about our services, about all the things that are going on here. And uh, if you're in the, sh- in the vicinity of, of Jasper and you want to drop in and pay us a visit, we'd be glad to see you. If you listen to this regularly and it blesses you, would you please drop us a line? I cannot begin to tell you how much that means to us. Drop us a line. Give us a favorable review on the podcasting mechanism you use or give us a thumbs up or something, you know, but it really means a lot to us. Not because we're trying to reach the multitudes. We don't care if this thing doesn't reach more than 100 people. But but if there's 100 of you out there, we'd love to hear from you to let us know that what we're doing blesses you because sometimes we are weary and busy and we don't necessarily you know we both have full-time jobs you know we're not necessarily feeling up to making the podcast and then you know there's about all two two and a half hours of production that goes into it and uh so all i'm saying i'm not trying to feel sorry for myself i'm just saying if you if you let us know that it's a value to you it really helps um and it just encourages us and keeps us moving um Bethany, I gave you my books about the Doctor Who Bible mm-hmm. study, and we're looking at that right now to see if it's ready for us to do in January. So, uh, Beth, you got anything you want to say to people? Um, I can't think of anything. All right, then I'm going to say God bless you and goodbye. Bye. <laughs>